HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Traveled Palette, where your personal chef, Natasha Ho, teaches you to cook gourmet meals with global flavors. Learn more at heynatashaboo.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Megan Bent, founder and managing partner at Harbinger Ventures, an investment firm specializing in early stage consumer brands that are led by exceptional female founders or mixed gender founding teams. Harbinger is unique in that it incentivizes collaboration among its portfolio companies by giving each entrepreneur an equity stake in the portfolio. Megan has spent the past decade working to identify and grow companies serving as a lead director, problem solver, operator, strategic thinker, and confidant to emerging entrepreneurs. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. Um, I vividly remember exactly where I was standing when we had our first call. I was very nervous. And um, I think it was like, in the first 10 seconds, you were like, I just want you to know your company is like too early for us and I think it sounds amazing and I'm here to help you but you're going to have to go through a lot of calls like this and I don't want to (laughs) take up your time if um if you find this stressful and it was like I took this big deep sigh and like breath of relief and then we had an incredible conversation for like the next half an hour or 40 minutes and I'll never forget it um so you know, two or three years later, I don't even know what it is. Um, I'm thrilled you're you're here. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to sort of talking about exactly that type of dynamic that exists between investors and entrepreneurs, because I don't think it has to be like that. Yes. And that is exactly why I wanted you to come on. Um, just to be clear, everyone, Harbinger is not an investor in Haven's Kitchen, which has actually made a lot of the conversations where I've called Megan much easier. Um, and I don't know if it's, you know, a weird thing, but 
you know, I think you particularly know how to have a conversation with a founder that doesn't feel like that weird power dynamic, which we will talk to. But I also just feel in general, like it's been really nice to have someone kind of with no real skin in the game, just give me real good advice, Um, you know, three or four times along the journey. Um, So I guess I'm lucky. I'm happy (laughs) to hear that. Everyone needs a phone a friend. Yeah, exactly. You should just call it phone a friend ventures. (laughs) Um, so tell me a little bit more about the history of Harbinger. I know you've been investing for a long time. I want to hear your sort of love story with investing and and your thoughts and and how Harbinger came to be. Yeah. You know, so Harbinger is very much a, a love story with the industry, um, and with the world of entrepreneurs. So, you know, Harbinger specifically is an early stage growth equity fund that's focused on consumer products that are growing and scaling businesses that can really reinvent their categories. But but the idea is goes much deeper than that in, in terms of how we partner with brands, why we partner with brands, and, and you know, how we really want to grow those companies. And it was informed by my prior 10 years at a family office where I had no business being investor. I had no experience investing and an entrepreneur as only entrepreneurs can do, you know, said, move from London to Boulder and, and come build my investment strategy for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we spent the next 10 years trying to do just that. And, you know, what I developed was a deep, deep reverence for founders, a real mm-hmm. understanding of sort of how they see the world differently, how they think and, and where that magic is most functionally directed. Right. And where the blind spots are, um, a really unique operating perspective on how businesses are actually run, not only sort of the business of investing, but the business of business building. Right. And and sort of across those two things, where were these the huge gaps and, and opportunities for better alignment, better innovation between investment firms and, and founders? And so Harbinger launched in 2016 as, as an experiment at the time to understand if there were little tweaks and big tweaks we could make as an investment firm to, you know, improve outcomes and and be a better partner. Um, You know, why do I love investing? To me, it's about problem solving. Like Mm -hmm. every business is a puzzle. And I had a mentor tell me early on that there's no company that has the strategy the day it launches and and probably not even five years in. The goal is to solve for the strategy before you run out of money or you run out of trust or you run out of time and the stakes are really high. And so sort of, I take that adrenaline and that excitement towards, you know, digging, digging intellectual curiosity. How, how is what we're doing resonating? How is it not a constant refining? And to me, that's where the real fun is in investing. Yeah. I mean, and you can tell that you, it just, even in that one conversation we had at the beginning, you were talking about this this product in ways that, you know, candidly, I didn't get that much excitement from the 109 other people that I called over the course of the next four months or whatever it was, some of them, some of them. But um, what it, going back a little bit, like has early stage quote unquote changed? And I guess that, that just for me, you know, I remember thinking I was early stage and I was like, not even early, early stage. And, and second part of that is that it feels like because there's been this weird dynamic between founders and funders, 
it feels like more founders are bringing in friends and family and angels and family offices in a way later. And the funds are, it, it feels to me like either going sort of very early pre-revenue or much later than they were before, but that's just very kind of my little world. So I'd love sort of defining early stage now and then maybe a little bit of how you see the ecosystem shifting a little bit in the last couple of years since you've been doing it. You're you're spot on here. So, you know, one is I think investors are sort of purposefully ambiguous around what early stage means, right? Mm-hmm. Because we love to move the bar based on, you know, everything else that's going on with the fund. And so, you know, I, I think as you go from fund to fund, early stage means something different by mm-hmm. sector, by fund. Um, however, at, at a higher level, the, the way capital has come into consumer, I think has moved that bar up. So, yeah. you know, when I first started investing 10 years ago, early stage, you know, was like a brand doing maybe 500K to a million Mm -hmm. and a half. And then the size series A that they were raising was like $2 million. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that equity sort of was going to get the business towards their initial early growth equity proof of concept. And maybe they raise more money or maybe they sell or maybe they're profitable at that point. What What's happened here is, and, and most of those businesses were were founded with no capital. So there was right. no real seed or venture or angel network. Like you you built your business with pure sweat, with margin um, and, and sort of profitably because you didn't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. Um, as family offices, friends and family have wanted to put money in this space because it's fun, because it's tangible, because there's great returns. Um, it's sort of pushed the bar up. So early stage looks more like, you know, post series seed pre growth equity, which could be anywhere from $3 million up to 20 million, right? right? Or even higher in terms of revenue profile and early stage series A rounds where we play could be 3 million to 10 million in size. And so the, the magnitude of business proof that's required to be considered early stage, what they're really saying is early stage means concept risk has been largely removed and it's really about execution. And more proof seems to be required, um, these days than it used to. Right. And I mean, I guess that's part of the question, like concept risk, has changed also when you're not just talking about, yeah, we're in two regions of Whole Foods and it looks like we might get a PO for whatever. Now there are all these digitally native companies that, you know, they could be at 2 million in sales and still not necessarily have de-risked the concept. I mean, you know, if, if, if they're spending a lot on ads or they're you know, they still might not know entirely who they are yet. And that's, I, do you know what I mean a little bit? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. Cause I actually, as I was, as I was jotting down some thoughts or notes, I, I actually put sort of like farmer's market 
is to early, you know, direct to consumer where it's just broader reach, right? Like anybody can sort of put up a Shopify site and start selling product the way you used to be able to go to your farmer's market. And just because consumers love you on a Saturday and you're, you know, selling Mm -hmm. 3000 bonbons every weekend doesn't mean you have sort of national fit or or real scalable proof of concept. You know, similar here, you just can reach more consumers, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean you've sort of de-risked the total market opportunity. Right. And so I, I think for entrepreneurs, as, they, as they're thinking through those milestones, as they're thinking through proof of concept, you know, the concept of concept risk is, is eliminated means with a broad audience that is somewhat diversified, you're showing real traction. You're showing good repeat rates and loyalty and engagement and ability to beat out competitors profitably mm-hmm. or at a profitable yeah. unit economic basis. Yeah, that's great. So I read a medium piece that you wrote um, a couple, it, oh, it was about, it was in response to the GameStop stuff. And I thought it was really interesting because in one sentence, you basically compared Amazon, Tesla, and the Kardashians and how, you know, fundamentally they all are evidence of this massive consumer shift, which is largely about democratization of everything. Right. And um, I'm guess I kind of am curious about how that so so if if consumers are generally more interested in transparency and there's less trust in the big institutions and everyone's a critic and, you know, everything's kind of democratized to some extent. Right. Then how does that affect you? and your investment thesis and what has shifted in the last couple of years for you that maybe you weren't thinking so much about, you know, a couple of years ago? It, 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 so the, the short answer is you absolutely have to be consumer obsessed in order to um, sequence your business strategy and your communication and your innovation in, in ways that you sort of had other workarounds 10 years ago. So, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you, you, you sold to Whole Foods. Whole Foods was actually your customer, right? Mm-hmm. They decided if your product was going to make it on the shelf, they decided what marketing you'd have access to. And, and then you had the, the, the four P's, right? Product, right. price, placement, et cetera, that, that really drive, drove velocities, um, trial and retention. Um, today, you don't have to go through that curated environment. You can, and in some products, that is the right way to go. Right. Um, but the alternative is you go direct to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And there's pros and cons of that, right? It's a double-edged sword. On, on the pro side, you have um, total access. It's democratized, right? Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, you're very vulnerable. There's a lot more sort of um, brand risk than there used to be. They don't like your product. They put it right on your website, right? right? They don't enjoy how you're speaking about your supply chain. They comment on your social. And so, you know, as we invest, we think a lot more about that brand durability and the product durability. And is this company, is this brand, is this leadership team ready to take on the responsibility and the risk of working directly with their consumers where they have all the benefits of 
first party access and data, um, but all the risks that come with that too. And for us, that shows up in a couple different ways. One is the story they're telling has to really be authentic. Um, and so if, if a company is sort of pretending to be something it's not, if the product quality doesn't stand up to what they're promising, if they're more expensive than the value they're delivering, right. it's, it's not going to be a fit for us on the investment side because the consumer is going to call them on that right away. Can I um, ask you a question and interrupt you on this for sure. one second? I, I, this is, I, so I had John Foraker on a couple of weeks ago and you know, everyone, anyone who really has like chops in this industry talks about needing to know your why, needing to know your who, what really, you know, what is that story? How, how is it authentic? And I have yet to meet a founder who doesn't believe their own story. Like <laughs> everybody thinks that they're authentic. Everyone thinks that their story they, they, they've solved something. They wouldn't be doing this if they didn't. Like, how do you suggest these founders and, and brands and companies to get out of their own way and really like, cause we all think our babies are beautiful and we all think that they're like geniuses and you know, they, yes. they can all be right. So we, you so, know, we're all like, we're all taking notes and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to, you know, we have to be, you know, our story has to be authentic and we all think our stories are authentic. How, who, how do we know? So, so two things. One is you would be shocked and maybe this is sort of the bias um, viewpoint of my position. How many founders like came up with their business idea in an entrepreneurship class in business school where they identified a TAM white space that's right. unit economic driven. And they're, they're sort of like, they don't really care about the product or the industry. It's a business plan that they're raising money into. Mm. And they're very transactional um, growth plans, right? Maybe they work. A lot of times they don't. That's, that's not our type of founder, but there are a lot of founders that don't have a why. Their why is right. because I think I can make money here. Um, <laughs> and um, right. I, I think that the founders you're talking about, you probably have a great network of founders that really do believe in the businesses they're building. Right. And I think where, you know, where you can really pressure test um, whether or not your why matters um, is is on sort of the the elements of product market fit. Like, do you see real loyalty? Are the repeat rates really high? Do you see the consumer willing to go out of their way to find your product, to recommend your product, to advocate for your product, to share mm -hmm. your product? Right. It's sort of like you know the the, um, the relational elements of your right. brand when your mission or your vision or your why is not only real, but also like important to the actual consumer, right. it starts to show up in the, in the financials or the numbers, um, you see real traction. So I think where, where founders make a mistake on this a lot is like, they do have a why and their why is really important and it's real. It's just a very small why. Right. And so at the end of the day, it, it's not, the right fit for, you know, raising capital or growth equity and taking on that kind of dilution and that sort of ownership pressure because it's a, um, it's a more regional opportunity, right? right. It's, a, it's a smaller consumer audience. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. Okay. No, so no problem. One, your story has to be authentic. 
story has to be story has to be authentic. I think the second is we think a lot about and we look a lot about, you know, where does that authentic perspective create a disproportionate share of voice? Because you're a small brand, you don't mm-hmm. have a ton of leverage. To your point, anybody can pop up a Shopify site. Um, it, it's, you know, once you get on a Target shelf, there's lots of different brands. So where are you going to be able to stand out? And it, and as we go through each of our portfolios, we could point to different examples, right? Sometimes it is the mission-driven leadership. It's the partnerships with Save the Children. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's on, you know, our, our wine brand, for example, um, has a really unique content strategy where organically they own these micro corners of the search world so that they own things like do tannins give you headaches? And, right. and those are really important conversations that they now own. And so for us, the founders have to be able to not only come up with a good product idea and innovation, but trace that need and that emotional need, functional need, product need, all the way back to um, relative points of advantage in their marketing mix, in their positioning, um, and in their channel strategy, because that's how you can really create a deep relationship with the consumer yeah. where you have a disproportionate level of influence um, yeah. than your sense. size would suggest. Got it. Is there a number three? Oh, did I say three? <laughs> no, was, I was just wondering because okay. one was authentic, I, two was where was, does that turn into influence and like that point of advantage? I was just wondering before I went on to my next thing if there was a number three. No, I, I think to me it, it starts with authentic. I, the, the last would be discipline, right? Okay. Because in the world of omni-channel, mm-hmm. omni-channel cannot mean omnipresent. There are very few products that actually need to be in, you know, 50,000 doors um, right. and on Amazon and direct to consumer. Um, and, and so as you're trying to build authenticity, as, as you're trying to reinforce certain elements of your point of difference, you have to stay really disciplined on aligning your opportunity with your core consumer and then building sequentially. That often means also being really focused on your consumer. Like we talk to a lot of brands and you'll say like, describe your consumer. And they're like, well, the amazing thing about this product is everyone likes the product. That's not very targetable, (laughs) right? Like that's not easy to talk to those audiences. So start at the core and work your way out. I've definitely, I've definitely said that and then like made fun of myself for saying it. Like everyone (laughs) needs sauce. Um, Which is true. But the second sort of question about sort of the, the democratization piece and, and, and I mean, you may, it just, everyone go, well, find Megan bent on LinkedIn and then read the medium piece because it's really interesting. But the other question I kind of had about it is that, okay, so there's this world right now where these big sort of behemoth CPG companies have lost trust. It's relatively inexpensive, right, to create a new product, to get it up on Shopify, to market it, right? Um, It's actually not that hard. And and I say this knowing that it was actually really freaking hard, but it's not that hard (laughs) to raise money to start something. Um, And it's relatively easily to gain a following. Like, I think that Getting to a million in sales today is not what it was five years ago. At least that's my impression, largely because of digital. So then the big question for me is if you have 15 people in the same, they've identified the keto fill in the blank space and they all have these, you know, they, they're all doing their thing. They can't, they can't all be winners, 
I mean, mm-hmm. maybe they can't, maybe it's not as binary as like, you know, there's only one General Mills, so one of them will get bought. It might not be that one for one thing, and maybe there are other buyers out there, but like if there are all these new brands, do you think there will be new buyers? There, so they're, they're proving to be new buyers, I think. Um, you know, to your point, if you look at like how long it took to build, you know, the first hundred million in sales at Nike versus mm-hmm. Allbirds, you know, right. those growth curves are just bonkers in terms of what digital channels have allowed you to do in acceleration. Um, but with that opportunity does come a lot of liquidity, a lot of capital, a lot of um, competition. So, mm-hmm. so you're exactly right. Like the dynamics are um, have traded different types of risks and opportunities that brands need to be really mindful of. Right. Um, I think it's also, you know, circling back to our original discussion around like what does early stage mean? It's probably one of the reasons why early stage keeps creeping up. Right? Is like, hey, those first million dollars aren't right. that hard to Don't achieve. Anybody. Much can get it yeah. up. And so, you know, what is it, what does proof of concept mean in this new world reflects what you just described, which is like the barriers to entry have really come down. And so how do you identify a brand that's got durability and staying power? Right. Um, so I think, um, in terms of, you know, uh, exits and opportunity and, and things like that, there's probably three different things. One is there probably is sort of too much capital and innovation coming into this space relative to what the consumer the, and the different channels can absorb. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, acquisition costs, you know, went down in 2020 because of COVID, but they were previously on the rise. That channel is maturing in terms of supply, demand, and volume. You see acquisition costs rising on Amazon as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sort of uh, wholesale as a partner has been mature for quite some time. And so where you're going to find, where small brands will find opportunity is getting a little bit squeezed. That's going to reduce the number of brands. That's, that's a, that's a, re-emerging barrier to entry, right? That will yeah. slow down some of that rationalization, some of that. Um, I think the second is, you know, you see some um, private equity players playing around with this, but, you know, whether or not there's this concept of the next generation doesn't need um, okay. sort of household name legacy mm-hmm. brands, they actually just like a lot of choice. And so is there an argument for like a roll up of smaller companies that are more specialized, speak to more acute need states or concerns, and where the scale is held at like the portfolio level, right, instead of the brand level? Right. I think that's one opportunity that that you're seeing. And so then the sorry, third just is- so. I can understand in non like financial speak. So that would basically, or do you mean like a a KKR buying a bunch of brands, keeping them relatively small and not ever needing to sell them to Unilever or Kraft, just keeping it. Or they sell them as a broader portfolio. Um, I see. Okay. And, and so your scale happens differently because it sort of is in line with the the fragmentation of the consumer or the set or that the channel allows. And then the last would be like the emergence of um, different buyers, buyers that specialize on Amazon, right? Grove emerging as a, as an M&A buyer where um, they have a different way that they underwrite businesses, where they underwrite to the fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just strategics, but you have a new set of sort of semi-strategic or financial buyers emerging as well. And, and that'll re- 
provide a little bit of like relief, right. Or liquidity for, for specific brands that are highly specialized. Um, and, and so sort of like the way that I summarize is within the world of specialization, if you are able to get a business up and going to, you know, couple million in sales and you're profitable and you have Mm -hmm. good dominance in a tiny corner of the universe, but no ability to scale, you probably have an alternative world of buyers that could cooperate with you or fund you because specialization is something interesting. Interesting. I think it's harder and harder to build real transformational scale businesses because the competition is so enormous um, halfway through that life cycle. Yep. Okay. Awesome place to take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Well-Traveled Palette, where your personal chef, Natasha Ho, teaches you to cook gourmet meals with global flavors. Bring more variety, ease, and fun to your meals by boosting your confidence in the kitchen. Ready to get cooking? Text the word FLAVOR to 66866 to set up your complimentary first session. Sharpen your skills and bring new life to every meal by texting FLAVOR to 66866 to set up your complimentary first session with Natasha Ho of The Well-Traveled Palette. I'm back with Megan Bent from Harbinger Ventures. Um, so you briefly mentioned that, you know, Instagram and Facebook ads, you know, the cost of cost of acquiring new consumers online went down, um, during COVID. It seems to me to be creeping back up and that seems to be an upward trajectory. Um, other thoughts on COVID, like if you had to write an essay on how COVID has affected your industry, what would your three body paragraphs be? <laughs> wow. I mean, getting it down to three is like a real <laughs> ass. Um, I so, mean, five is fine too. Yeah, I could go on. First of all, like what a year, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's just um, pretty wild. So, you know, it sort of if I think through like the sequence of events, right, and how they've influenced businesses and, and the sector, I think, you know, one is businesses that really responded, right? Tightening their business model, de-risking, I think have found long-term benefit. You know, they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, I can actually operate the business with a leaner organization and less trade spend. And they they found permanent cost savings. So it's something, you know, nothing like a crisis, right? To Mm -hmm. give you the permission to make some transformative business decisions. And um, for many businesses, like that actually will have a long-term benefit on their operating model. Mm-hmm. That's on the positive side. I think the, you know, the second, um, you know, COVID uh, impact here is, is, has been the much covered digital transformation, mm-hmm. which is like a huge forced trial of different digital platforms, whether it's Instacart or Amazon or direct to consumer. What I'm most interested coming out of that is what that sort of one year of intense digital integration does to their expectations as they go back to normal channels. Like, will you sit in a restaurant and wait 20 minutes for the 
waiter to remember to bring your check, right? The impatience that digital access and instant gratification has created. Um, Will you go to a gym for a scheduled abs class at 12 noon that you have to drive, check in, it's only at 12, when you could do a 12.15 class streaming. So how will um, analog businesses rebound as people are dying to get back in person? They want that community. They want that touch and feel, but their expectations as they come back have been um, really transformed and impacted. And so they're going to have to step up or evolve their offering. I'm really interested to watch watch that. Um, and then the third here is, you know, consumer behavior, um, <laughs> inverted, reverted, reversed, accelerated. <laughs> you know, you saw people like not wearing deodorant for right. a year. That's <laughs> that's not going to be forever, right? right. That, those are coming back. You know, some categories took real hits um, because while well, you were at home, you didn't need the convenience right. of a meal a replacement bra. bar, right. but you're baking. <laughs> and, and so- some of those behaviors will be sticky. Some will not be sticky. Right. And, and so, you seeing know, what sticks. yeah, seeing what sticks, how out of home consumption rebounds versus in home. And there, there's a, there's a lot that's still TBD in, in terms of which ones of those consumer experiments people learned they loved and, yep. and which ones will sort of, you know, slide back into old patterns. Yeah. I mean, in both directions, right? Like I remember I had Dan Frommer on at the end of last year and he was talking about this massive consumer study that they did. And it was like 20% of the consumers in like the 3,500 person poll said that not only did they buy directly from brands, but they preferred to buy Mm -hmm. directly from brands, even though it wasn't as, you know, convenient as getting everything in one basket. They felt this like solidarity with the brand, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering at what point that kind of, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm very, anyone who, who knows me or listens to this knows that I, I will put all of my eggs in Instacart's basket pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty strongly over like demos and stuff like that. And if, Mm -hmm. you know, from a marketing perspective, but I, I'm still not quite sure people want to get nine different packages from nine different companies all the time. I'm with you. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I I think, you know, during COVID, while you had, you know, less to do, right? The Mm -hmm. excitement of receiving a box and discovering a new company online and managing, you know, different... Check out dopamine yeah, yeah. You know, it's like impulse shopping, right? It, it was a social behavior. Um, I think cart consolidation is going to be pretty material. So the in food, where we've seen in food and in beverage, where we've seen a step change in percent of sales coming from um, online or digital, I, I think that that will stay at a significantly higher level than before, but right. I'm guessing you'll see it consolidate right into right. click and pick up into Instacart at home delivery or into Amazon because convenience will be considerate of not only does it arrive at my door, but how many boxes do I have to break down? Right. Um, you know, the other COVID phenomenon that will be really interesting to watch um, is, you know, some of these large CPG companies that had really extraordinary performance in 2020, mm-hmm. um, you know, first ever growth years um, because consumers sort of flocked back to some staples, maybe because they wanted or needed them. Um, they were well-timed, but but also because of just like availability, you know, mm-hmm. large CPG did a nice job with their supply chain, keeping um, shelves stocked. 
um, in exchange for that, you know, while they focused on on operations, they shelved innovation mm-hmm. and retailers shelved innovation. And so yeah. as we come back into this new normal, you have strategics and retailers that are looking at very diff- difficult year-over-year comps. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, how are am I going to put up those raise kind of numbers? Prices? Like, they is may every- raise their papers yeah. or they may start buying young brands again and trying yeah. to get back out ahead of some of these, you know, growth opportunities because they delayed innovation. And so they, they use M&A, hmm. right, as an alternative. And so right. I'd, I'd expect some of the, the bumps that young companies may have felt over the last year where retailers push back their resets or they mm-hmm. sort of felt like they couldn't get heard. Um, we may see some softening as that as, as retailers and even category captains strategics thing. I got to get my cap, my category yeah. sort of back I mean, in growth mode. That would be nice. <laughs> that That's part the would optimistic be cool. version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I get it and I feel for our buyers at all of our different, you know, wholesale partners. And I just, to the extent that this system was quote unquote disrupted, um, because of the clunkiness and the challenges and the different players and your distributor never getting back to you and the buyer not even opening your email. And I get why it was disrupted. I'm in a position where like we have a fresh product that, that needs to be in grocery mm-hmm. stores and that's the channel that we've chosen as our primary, you know, channel. And I think it's working. Um, but I get it. It's really frustrating. It'd be great to And I think just I'm going to vent for one second, and this Mm -hmm. is a little off topic, but I think part of the frustration for brands is that you have the, the, the stores themselves coming out with these, like, these are our initiatives and these are the things that we think are going to be huge trends. And this is our strategy from like a, you know, an inclusive and a, you know, diversity perspective. And then you have the merchandisers who don't seem to have gotten the memo or Mm. have gotten a different memo that you know, while those might be the objective strategies of the company, um, their, their objective still is, you know, cents on the dollar, you know, and, and maximize that space, which a lot of innovative products just aren't going to do early on, you know? That sort of like short-term versus long-term thinking, right? Yeah. And, you know, um, I think some of the better run grocers that are better positioned to compete with, you know, Costco um, mm-hmm. or Amazon long-term, you know, I'm thinking Walmart and Target have mm-hmm. have done okay in the last couple of years, have been better positioned to take some risk right. because their shareholders allow them to. I think the retailers that are um, losing market share who are sort of technological behind and in terms of some of these advantage, you know, where they turn is profit, which creates this sort of like downward spiral. They they lose access to the brands that really drive traffic and discovery um, and, you know, and and margin becomes their priority. And so I think some of what we're watching for is how do you partner with the retailers that actually are positioned to be good partners? Because otherwise they just can't be trusted. Well, that's one of the things that you, that in one of my calls to you, you had a really good, you were talking about creating your selling parameters Mm -hmm. and making sure that you almost have your boundaries as a small brand of 
why you want to work with certain retailers just because they want you doesn't necessarily mean that you want them or that you can afford them and what how many SKUs do you want on the shelf and how often do you want to promote and and having your own sort of we don't think that we have any um you know it's kind of hard for us to set to set the rules a little bit around um around stuff and I think one of the things you told me early on was like just create create this sort of like little guide for yourself so that every time an opportunity comes up, even though it's exciting, you can kind of weigh it against those selling parameters and make sure that it actually fits into your strategy and you don't get kind of swept away by, you know, the excitement of someone calling, um, which, which leads me to sort of the next piece of this, because I feel like on another one of our calls, I feel like we've had quite a few calls, um, you were talking, I don't know that you use the word training. I don't remember exactly how you talked about it, but I remember that you were in some sort of a, a workshop with someone that was new on your team. And it was sort of relating to how to engage with founders. And I don't, I know it's not like we're these like weird little sort of precious things that need to be handled with kid gloves because I also don't like that trope, like that all founders are egomaniacal and we need to be spoken to in a particular <laughs> tone of voice. But I do feel like this is what you are really, really good at. And it seems like you also foster that among your team. And I'm just kind of wondering, was that, did I imagine that or is that a real thing? No, it's, it's a real thing. And it's something I'm really passionate about. And we, we work hard at this and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we have, um, more to learn and ways to go. The, the way that I, I think about it is, um, is sort of in two buckets. You know, one is EQ goes a long way and is a really Mm -hmm. undervalued tool in this industry, you Mm -hmm. know, sort of taking the time to be really transparent not only in terms of this is what I'm going to do, the transactional elements of the discussion, but the, but the relational ones, you know, here is why this is important. Like to I'm me. not going to invest this, in this. These right are now. my right. priorities, <laughs> right? Like, here's why this is a challenge to me. I have found that to go a really long way because it takes me to my second point, which is there are these like, um, gaps in understanding of, you know, each other's business model. Mm -hmm. So entrepreneurs aren't in the business of raising funds, investing funds, and, and don't necessarily like need to know that business except where it creates misalignment with their own business. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where you can end up in sort of like a miscommunication, right. Mm -hmm. Or a misunderstanding is when you're basically speaking different dialects during a negotiation. And so I, I think in, in our, in our world, we actually, when we're talking through, um, you know, a term sheet negotiation or how we want to go back to founders with feedback on the last quarter's performance, we actually sort of like take the time to take our investment points and translate them into operator speak. So mm-hmm. we have at our firm, one investment partner, that's me and two operating partners. And those two operating partners are seasoned executives. They've sat in the same, they've been, you know, um, they've, they've been in a, a position of having disappointed investors or getting tough board feedback mm-hmm. or having to, you know, make team change outs. It actually in it, it walked in their shoes. And so 
we find that like contextualizing and taking the time to translate your priorities into something that's more familiar to them is really well worthwhile because a lot of times you're more aligned than you think and where tensions get high, where, um, is sort of both parties lose, so to speak is, is when there's like actually just a misunderstanding around priorities and incentives. Can you give me an example of that? Like the only thing that comes to mind is, you know, we might not understand why our margins, like why our gross margins should be X versus Z or, you know, and and then you can translate that because of these are the, these might be the things that you're going to need to do. And this is why they're going to matter. But can you, do you have a, do you have more tangible? Yeah, I can. Yeah. So, so for example, we've found that if you're, you know, let's say you're, you're in a board meeting and, you know, there's, there are certain elements of the business performance margin or velocity that, that aren't sort of consistently showing improvement and you're pushing on them as a board member, like each quarter, you know, Hey, we really got to get these numbers up. We really got to get these numbers up. And the founder's like, yeah, I get it. We got to get the the numbers up. We're working on it. We're working on it. Right. Mm -hmm. When, when we're able to say, no, here's why you need to get the numbers up. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your velocities are currently in the bottom half of the category. You're at risk for discontinuation. You get discontinued here and you get a spiral effect downward, or right. here's why your margin really matters. If you're not margin accretive, these three strategics won't even look at your business, right? right. You, you think you can sell to Procter and Gamble with your margin profile. They're not even going to open the book right. um, when you distribute the SIM down the road. So, you know, for your long-term goal where you want to sell the business for $300 million, some of this work has to happen today. Mm-hmm. And it's, and so contextualizing yeah. why we're pushing. So it doesn't feel so arbitrary, right. Or why we're, we're prioritizing certain conversations can just help, um, I think founders who may know this as, or may not as a reminder for like, Oh, that is why, you know, that these elements keep coming up. I'm not getting nagged. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, this is thought partnership. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I do have, you know, I have a, a lead investor who, um, the first time we ever spoke his, I think the first question he asked was something along the lines of what are you looking for? And my, the first thing that I said, it kind of like blew out of my mouth was I'm looking for someone who's when I, like when I see their name in my email inbox, I don't get a pit in my stomach. And <laughs> it, that I met him for the first time last March. Um, and I can say after like they, you know, they've now been investors in our business since, you know, January, the whole negotiations were great. Everything was amazing. And I, I genuinely don't get a pit. I get like a, Ooh, what's he got to say? Or like, huh, can I send him this? I've introduced him to everyone on my team who has a direct relationship with him at this point, because they have questions too. Like, there is such a massive difference between what that experience is versus a few friends of mine that are, they just, they're like, oh, you know, I have a call and they're going to ask me stuff and like, I'm dreading it. And, and what's sad about that is that they're not extracting all the value that they could be out of these people that have all of these portfolio companies and can be really useful because there's like a trust problem mm-hmm. and, and it's like, it bums me out to watch. And I guess my question for you is like, other than transparency, like I know that you don't have that trust problem 
it seems like you really don't have that trust problem. Like you are actively building something. Um, but what are the other things that you do just to, to not be, you know, I still don't like to call him with bad news. Don't get me wrong. But I also know that he's not like, why was the, you know, Florida region of Whole Foods in May, not what it was in, you know, the, 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 you know, he's not, he's not getting so granular that it puts me on my heels about everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, we, we think about it, you know, one is transparency, right? Mm -hmm. And so being really open in terms of our business priorities, how they align with their business priorities. Like we share our underwriting, you know, literally the models we build and, um, and the investment memos we write so that our founders have a really good understanding of, you know, where, where, how we approach the investment. Mm -hmm. But, but the other elements come, you know, post-transaction, I think about relevance and quality a lot. And, and we talk about this in our team a lot, you know, don't, don't ask the founders to answer questions that you could have answered yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't make introductions that aren't valuable, right? Like do, do some of the work on your end to right. vet those intros and make sure they're truly relevant to do the reference calls to make sure that Amazon broker is as good as your, you know, your mm -hmm. friend says they are right. Or the other portfolio company says they are. So for us, like how we use, um, our portfolios time mm -hmm. really has to be a very high quality use of their time. Right. Internally, we say, if we're not generating a positive return on effort or positive return on hot, on time in our conversations, then we're likely wasting resources in some mm -hmm. way or another. So I think that goes a long way That's because cool. founders think through, okay, these people are really honest with us and transparent. They use our time really well. Mm -hmm. They ask us to use our time really well. Um, and so it feels mutual. And then the last thing we do um, is our founders share in the promote of the fund. Yeah. And, you know, for us, let's be honest, like venture capitalists often say they're value add. <laughs> mm -hmm. What they're really saying is we derive insights from our other portfolio companies that might be valuable to you. And so we're this like inefficient conduit of insights. Right. And so granting equity incentives to founders encourages them to just cut us out as the middleman and connect directly and care about each other's businesses and yeah, go straight to cool. the source of the value. Um, but it also is, is a literal translation of the concept we invest in people, you know, right. We, we sort of diligence our founders. Um, and, you know, when we invest behind their businesses, we're also confident enough in those people that we're granting them equity in our fund because we think they're going to be contributors. And so for us, that sort of shows up as like mutual respect. And, yeah, that's and, huge. Um, and, and our hope is that there's a, um, a, a very strong understanding of like what our expectations are. There's a high level of mutual accountability, mm -hmm. but it also feels, um, more like an equal partnership versus this power imbalance, right. which I think is when founders like hide bad information, right. Or yeah. don't want to share the bad news or the good news. And, and, and then you live in like a dark room and you can't be your best investor if you're not getting good information. What do you do when you, a founder comes to you and they're like, we want to do X, Y, Z, and you've seen this, you know, rodeo before and you're like, mm, I don't know. I, and you, and you give them your reasons and, and you have a good conversation and they go ahead and do it anyway. And then you were right. <laughs> 
Well, they, they might say the same thing back on me, which is like, what happens when I take Meg's advice and it's not the right advice? <laughs> and then how do I hold her accountable? Um, look, look, this happens, right? Because, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where when people ask you, like, what, what's the one thing you wish people had told you? It's like, well, right. actually, they told me everything. It was like, I wish I'd listened. Right, right, um, right. And, I, and I have that in my own career, right? Like, I've been given good advice over and over again, but sometimes you absolutely have to learn it. So, you know, the, I, I believe in experiential learner. So if we have um, a different um, perspective than a founder on some sort of strategic initiative, right? Like they, they think they got to get to Walmart and we think going to Walmart too soon is really risky. Mm-hmm. Our, our goal is to one, try to use data, right? To diffuse the emotional opinion-based element of the discussion, use some case studies, some references, some data mm-hmm. points to contextualize our opinion is not just like a random opinion. It's right. sort of grounded in experience. Um, if that doesn't work, it's it's lower the stakes of the learning environment. You know, if, if you want to go learn, explore, um, test, take some risk, uh, is there a way to just reduce the risk of that learning curve? Start in 200 doors, right? right. Launch an influencer campaign with 20 grand instead of 200 grand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, giving founders the permission, right, to take risks they feel really strongly in is part of our business model because, look, if, if we were always right, we'd be building businesses and owning hundred percent of them, but we're not that smart. The <laughs> right. genius comes from the founders. The innovation comes from the founders. And so if, if one of our executives feels really strongly, we want to give them the room to play. Our goal is to like take some of the risk right. out of it so that if, if we were right and they were wrong, you know, the, the, the loss on that learning cycle is actually like affordable quote right. unquote in the right. business model. And, and speaking of that, are there sort of consistent mistakes, you know, and I, in, in italics mistakes, right, that you see over and over again with, you know, whether it's your portfolio companies or just other brands that you follow that, you know, like, you're like, ah, oh, there's another one doing that thing again. Like, <laughs> are there consistent things like that that you're, that you see over and over again? The number one is complexity. You know, the the entrepreneurial spirit is one of optimism, and mm-hmm. and usually entrepreneurs have this sort of like endless capacity, endless work ethic. And so, you know, they'll say, well, it's just not that much work to go do X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> it, it's, you, we, we, I'm just going to try it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of another channel or a mark, another marketing strategy or another product line. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, or the complexity comes because the existing products aren't showing enough traction. And so mm-hmm. you start chasing, you know, categories that have categories that yeah. have velocities or, um, LTV chasing, right. Mm-hmm. Your, your AOV online is $30, but your economics don't really work out because your CAC is $30. So you're trying to figure out like, how do I get the consumer to spend $60 with me right. instead of focusing on the fundamentals. Right. And over and over again, we have seen when, can, when the founder actually 
goes through the exercise to say, I'm going to start eliminating things instead mm-hmm. of adding things. You get this strengthening of business model. Velocities mm-hmm. improve. And all of our businesses have been through this where you know you sort of go back to the core. You, mm-hmm. you take all your innovation and you sort of put it to the side and you say, let's just focus on our core. Margins improve. Velocities improve. And then all of a sudden you have permission again to innovate. Retailers right. like you again. So there's sort of like long-term benefits to that focus. Yep. So for us, complexity um, early on is usually a sign of um, either an operating bias that's like not going to work that well with us, um, poor product market fit, um, uh, or sort of just like an un- unwillingness, right, to, to do the boring work of commercializing right. a product yep. because yeah. you there's just, just a preference to do stuff. sexy stuff. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've, I fight that all the time, and especially with a with a fresh sauce, you know, and I, I, think, I think we feel this pressure to innovate. And everyone's like, what's the next flavor? And I'm like, you know, there's not going to be a new flavor every year forever, and we're mm-hmm. just going to keep adding on. Like, that's just not, that's not going to work. We're like, we will obviously keep innovating, but even, you know, shelf space, like I think the most fresh SKUs we'll be able to have, and I think it's optimistic is eight, you know, and we're, we're at six now, I think. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, there's, so there's someone's got to go, right? It, yeah. You're sort of continuing to like skew, rationalize, skew, rationalize. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, if you look at your innovation um, spend, you know, are you spending enough on continuing to improve your existing product and the experience of that product? Mm-hmm. Um you know, our wine brand, for example, has spent, um, you know, as much time developing the next um, uh, wine varietal as improving their packaging. So it's more and more streamlined and easier right. to unbox and position on the shelf. And, mm-hmm. and you know, what drives more value for the consumer choice or, you know, experience and efficiency. And, and if you were to do sort of the work, you'd probably find it's maybe some of the boring stuff that right. actually drive the greatest loyalty long term. So then the flip to the question of the the things that you see most often that are mistakes in italics, would the flip to that be that the founders that you kind of admire the most or that you feel are doing sort of like the best job, for lack of a better way to phrase it, are the ones that are maybe, you know, more disciplined in their approach, both from like product and channel and just like keeping it kind of, I think, I think there's, yeah, you know, if if complexity is the thing we fear the most, um, you know, some version of, um, focus, right. I don't even want to say simplicity because some of our businesses are actually complicated, but it's, um, a, a very acute understanding of what's most important and being able to align your time and your resources with that. So in the consumer product space, like, product quality, right? Taste Mm -hmm. if you're in food or beverage or, you know, efficacy or that whole, you know, experience is so critical. And so our best founders are obsessed with their product um, and the experience the consumer has 
and opening that product, using that product. You know, um, I remember talking to Raquel early on at fourth and hard and mm-hmm. the size of the jar opening was such that the consumer doesn't get her hand all greasy when she scoops out the bottom, like really mm-hmm. thinking through all of those details. Uh, sorry, it was ghee, like scooping out butter and making right. sure it's not messy. Um, and so, you know, from, from our perspective, found the founders that really continue to obsess about their product tend to put out products that are the most differentiated and that sell themselves because they, they taste so great, right? They feel like such good value to the mm-hmm. consumer on a relative basis. And, and, you know, those are really efficient businesses when you don't have to subsidize sort of trial and, and um, points of friction. Right. Amazing. Okay. Is there anything that now that you have the mic, you would like to tell all of the founders and people who are working on brands and people who are thinking about quitting their job and starting something? Is there something that you'd like to tell all of us? (laughs) It is such a fun industry, like building something with your own hands that's, that comes from a place of passion is an incredible experience. And so if you have an idea and it's been sort of in the back of your brain for a long time, go do it because you can do it, right? You can get a Shopify site and a co-working space and mm-hmm. a co-man and get that idea up into the world and get the get the responses from the consumers um, and be ready to listen, right? Sort of right. go in with an open mind around, is this idea something that really has mainstream appeal? The, the flip of that is as you're doing it, like hack that um, MVP the way they do in technology as mm-hmm. little money as possible to get the idea into the world and then a real intellectual honesty around whether or not it this looks like the, it's going to good plan because yeah. raising capital is absolutely the worst mm-hmm. if it's not the right time, it's not the right product, it's not quite the right strategy or it's not the right people. Yeah. And so you know, sweat equity, um, is hard, but it's, it's the right way to go because you solve a lot of those problems before you bring on new problems, which is your investment partners, right. That have different requirements. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I I know because I talk to so many founders there, the, the way that the media portrays entrepreneurship is like, I don't know, these two guys in one day and then the next day they sold to (laughs) Unilever and it was just amazing, you know, and like those two guys, that is not the story, right? But I think that people assume that, you know, they need more than they need to get a product off the ground or they need it to grow faster than it, it normally kind of organically will. And that's when they start to chase things like, maybe we need to do a new thing and maybe we need to pay more for this. And maybe we need, you know, and I think so it's hard. It's hard being, you know, I I no longer say slow and steady wins the race because I actually don't believe that we are slow and steady, nor that that actually wins the race right now. That said, um, you know, it feels like there's, there's just a misunderstanding of, how amazing everything's supposed to be all the time. And it's not. Yeah, there, there's been like a branding of this industry that's probably misaligned with the real experience. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it, if, w- would you launch a company if you knew it didn't take five years to get to an exit, but took 20, right. you know, do you love the product <laughs> so much that that's sort of like really where you want to spend the rest of 
you know, your, your professional life. life. <laughs> 20 and years, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, yeah. I'm okay with like 10, but like 20 feels like a lot to me, but it feels you know. like, it feels like a lot, but you know, that, that would be the other end of the extreme, like right. stress test your business plan through that lens and right. see if you still love it. All right, Megan, I, I really appreciate like, First of all, I appreciate you coming on, but I also really do appreciate how much time you've given me um, and just good advice and thoughtful advice over the last couple of years. Just want to thank you for that a lot. And, well, thank um, you. It's it's two ways. I learn something from you every time we speak to. Oh, well, that's nice. Um, I'm not sure what, but we could talk about that offline. <laughs> um, and Amanda, thank you for engineering. And um, all of you listeners, thank you, as always, for um, your notes and your DMs. And I hear from people that you're recommending the show. And I'm just, I'm glad that it's helping. And I'm glad that um, hopefully it's not too depressing for anyone. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.